Hi, everyone, and Happy New Year. This is the January episode of Amplify, and I'm so happy you're here and listening. This month, we are interviewing Dr. Ara Festekyan on the November Pediatric Emergency Medicine Practice article on Pediatric Septic Shock. This is a tremendous article and a information-packed interview. So I want you to sit back and really get your thinking caps on. He has a lot of pearls to share with us today. Before we get started, I just want to share two exciting things with you. First, if you haven't heard yet, we have launched the interactive version of our Clinical Pathways. These are published every month in every single one of our articles, And the new version is now available at clinicalpathways.ebmedicine.net with a link on the FOMED site. All you have to do is click on it. It's mobile friendly, it's easily accessible, and it lists clinical pathways for some of the most important things we do in emergency medicine. And I'm adding to it on a regular basis. This is the beta release, so any feedback you have would be greatly appreciated, and it's free to use. And second, if you haven't been made aware by your director or your coding and billing company, the new documentation guidelines went into effect on January 1st. There is a blog post detailing the summary of all of the things you have to include in your medical decision-making section of the chart, available to you for free at fomed.ebmedicine.net, along with a visual to help you remember all of those changes. I hope you find both of those items helpful to your clinical practice, and remember they're both free for you online at clinicalpathways.ebmedicine.net and fomed.ebmedicine.net. And now, on to our interview on pediatric septic shock. Hello, my name is Adam Fastik-Chiang. I'm an associate professor in pediatrics in the Division of Emergency Medicine at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. I also serve as the quality improvement director for the division. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are talking about the November 2022 article in Pediatric Emergency Medicine Practice on Pediatric Septic Shock, Recognition and Management in the Emergency Department. And honestly, this is one of those topics, uh, frequently the case on the podcast, that scares me. Children who are critically ill and not responding to medication or therapy, you know, most of the time they're very resilient and are bouncing back quite quickly. So this subsegment of pediatrics is the most critically ill of the critically ill. And so I, I really appreciate you and the other authors taking the time to write the article and to give us the review and then for you to be here on the podcast to talk to us about it. Before we start, tell me, is there something special about this topic or a particular case or why did you choose this topic to write about? Pediatric septic shock is actually my sub-niche within the division. It's the disease process that I find most interesting and humbling at the same time. All three cases that I talk about in this review are real cases. And two out of the three, particularly the first one, was the first case that I reviewed when I first got my role as the QI director for the division, which was back in July 2010. And very early on, septic shock established itself as a disease process that's near and dear to my heart because of particularly those two cases. They happened very close to each other within about a six to eight month difference between the two. And I have also a background in physiology and the physiology that exists around septic shock and how that affects how you treat, how they respond, how you have to address each of the minute to minute changes, I find fascinating and humbling at the same time, like I mentioned. And so those are the reasons that septic shock ended up becoming niche of mine. Yeah. 
Wow. And then when we're talking about sepsis and septic shock in children, how common is that? Is there data on that for U.S. cases? There is data on that. So there's highly developed countries and then there's poorly developed countries. In the highly developed countries, it's not that common. The incidence is about one patient per 2,000 cases per year. The mortality in developed countries is about up to 4%. And kids that have underlying problems, it's upwards of five times of that. And in, for example, sub-Saharan Africa or other places, like I mentioned in, in the review, it can be as high as 50%, depending on how they present and what kind of setting they present to. So the setting they present to also affects how they're managed with obviously the places that have more experience and more resources faring better than ones that have lower resources. So in the developed countries, we're still looking at 4% mortality. That's not really all that small, right? 4% mortality is for septic shock in the developed countries. In undeveloped countries, it's much more than that, upwards of close to 50%, depending on the setting. Wow. So that's why it's such a humbling process. And that mortality exists regardless of whether or not people did things right or not. You could do everything right and still the patient will succumb to the disease. And that's the part that the word humbling, I, I can't use it often enough in describing this disease process. And then when we're talking about sepsis and septic shock, there has been this kind of evolution in definitions. What was it we were using and what are we using now? And is, is it the same as in pediatrics as we would use in adults? So that's very complicated. It should be an easy, easy question to answer, but it's actually a complicated question to answer. We are not using the same definitions as we are in adults. There's a push to be doing that. So before it went from systemic inflammatory response syndrome, which was Sears, then it was more severity sepsis, then severe sepsis, and then septic shock. And then what we found was a lot of people were using severe sepsis interchangeably and they weren't using the definitions correctly. So in 2016, in the adult setting, a definition came based on what their sepsis score was. But to this day, that same difference in adults does not exist in kids. So the concept of septic shock versus severe sepsis and sepsis still exists. What they do agree on is the following, that sepsis is the result of number one, an infection, and number two, a dysregulated response by the host to that infection. And that's how they judge somebody having septic shock or not. The other category that becomes important in the definition is the use of vasoactive medications. If the use of vasoactive medications are needed for a certain amount of time, it fits the criteria for septic shock, advancing from just sepsis to septic shock. So there might be new studies coming out where they try to make the definitions the same. And technically, I kind of am happy the fact that the definitions are having such a struggle between adults and pediatrics because they are different. And the therapies are also kind of changing. There are things that adults that are utilized that are not utilized in kids and for good reasons. So I'd be curious to see what the new studies come up with. And I like the fact that we're constantly pushing in terms of getting better and better definitions. And the better definitions that we have, the more we can teach the public and also design studies that are going to give us definitive endpoints for us to make management decisions on. Yeah, there seems to be this kind of dichotomy between the clinical presentation and treatment and the billing and coding portion of it. Does this patient qualify for septic shock? And at some point we kind of go, well, somebody else will figure that out at some point. They're clearly going to the ICU, they're on pressers, and somebody can figure out what the language should be around this. Yes, yes. 
And a lot of adult septic shock treatment is based on being in intensive care unit, having a central line, having those pressures, having those physiologic parameters that you can measure pretty early on, which does not necessarily apply in pediatric septic shock. And so that's where I think it makes it difficult to come up with a definition that applies to both. Although with the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, which is an article repeatedly cited in the review, I think it's one of the seminal articles that you have to read if you're a pediatric emergency medicine provider or even an adult provider that's taking care of kids. That study comes closer as it is in terms of what's the best definition. Perfect. When we talk about sepsis in children, there are a host of etiologies, some age-based, some based on what the underlying illness is for the child, whether or not they have other medical problems. Tell me, in general, what are some of the broad categories of things that are causing sepsis in children that we might encounter in the emergency department? These are generalizations because there's overlap a lot in between all of them. However, particularly in neonates, group B strep is a big, big factor. As you get older and kids with technological dependence, such as those with central lines or indwelling catheters, such as a ventricular peritoneal shunt, staph aureus becomes another player in the realm of septic shock. In the case of immunocompromised patients, such as those receiving chemotherapy or immunomodulating agents, gram-negative agents, such as pseudomonas, become players. And you have to be mindful of that when you're giving the antibiotics, because you have to include antibiotics that have coverage for those types of organisms, which don't with some of the earlier generation cephalosporins. And the final category, asplenic kids, typically they get vaccinated to prevent strep pneumo. So the Prevnar that we use in kids to prevent strep pneumo in kids with asplenia present with sepsis due to strep pneumo, and they can get awfully sick from that. All right. So that's at least four to keep in mind there. Now, there's a, a pretty broad differential diagnosis for septic shock. There's a great table, table one on page five, which discusses different types of shock. So really the differential for septic shock is all other forms of shock that can occur in children. Is that right? That's correct. And again, I mentioned the word humbling. You can have overlapping kinds of types of shock that make it confusing to decide what's going on. For example, a child can start as septic shock and then develop cardiogenic shock as a consequence of the overwhelming sepsis that they're experiencing. So you have to be mindful of that when you're giving them a lot of volume resuscitation and how you adjust your vasoactive medications accordingly. And if you have a patient that presents in hypovolemic shock, but end up developing also characteristics of septic shock, it becomes harder and harder to differentiate between the two. So that's why I repeatedly say frequent reassessments in the review, because it's only with by reassessing the patients and how they're responding, whether they're not responding, we can determine what's the best management approach. Yeah, that certainly does complicate matters, as if uh, one form of shock is certainly bad enough, but treating two of them or more overlapping could make things quite difficult, I can imagine. Yes, yes. And septic shock, the definitions, sometimes you don't know about a bulk culture becoming positive until five, six, sometimes seven hours into their care. And so not having that, you have to assume is the case when you're treating patients, which is goes back to the underlying definition, which mm -hmm. has to be made based on a lot of clinical variables that have early on when you don't have access to all those laboratory values. Okay. When we discuss things here on the podcast, we walk through the article in the pre-hospital and then the ED evaluation for pre-hospital care. There are some of our colleagues are 
EMS personnel who listen to the podcast? What kinds of things should they keep in mind that can help us maybe make this diagnosis or even begin treatment if they're transporting a patient who might have septic shock? Uh, making the diagnosis that early on is probably a little bit difficult to make. The, the, instead of making the diagnosis, I would say that they have the diagnosis as a possibility in their mind. In terms of pre-hospital care, things such as the basic ABCs, supporting their airway, providing additional oxygen empirically, even if their pulse oximetry values are okay, and then trying to get them as quick as possible to the nearest setting that can help them. Some counties, for patients with septic shock that are in extremis, some counties allow for EMS personnel to perform intubations. It's not the case in the county that I practice in, but that would be something to think about early on. Because if they're losing their airway and simply providing oxygen is not enough, advanced airways such as intubation. And prior to that, if you're not going to intubate, giving valve mask, providing that oxygenation and the ventilation are key to giving them the best opportunity for us to be able to resuscitate them. As I said, even if you do everything right, sometimes patients will still succumb to the disease. But if they can think about providing all those extra things to prevent unnecessary harm from lack of sufficient oxygenation would be the thing to think about from the pre-hospital area. Yeah, and I can imagine for those EMS personnel who are able to do things like rapid sequence intubation, that's going to greatly alter hemodynamics in a patient and they should really be prepared for the worst. Sometimes that's going to make things a lot more difficult, even though it may be necessary. Yeah. The message would be, if you can, if the patient's situation allows it, to try to avoid that as much as possible because of the hemodynamics like you mentioned and try to get them to the setting as soon as possible. Okay, and then when they get to the emergency department and we're trying to get a history, probably from a parent in this scenario, what kinds of things are helpful to focus on? This is going to be divided into those kids that are very young and then those kids that are a little bit older. Almost all of them are going to be in the older setting. They're going to be fatigued. They're not going to be themselves. The younger child or the infant is going to be irritable and it's not going to be satisfied by taking intake or being calmed by the parent. The extent to which they're crying, they're inconsolable, would be a factor to consider in the very young infants. The presence of fever or not, the presence of vomiting or diarrhea, any kind of those non-specific systemic complaints that they might have. Very young infants that have septic shock almost always vomit because that's one of the first things that they do when there's something wrong with them. Older kids, when they look for their heart rates will be elevated, kind of diving into the exam. They won't want to move. They'll have the health characteristics of essentially the flu, but magnified where they're just not doing anything. The word lethargy comes to mind in terms of wanting to sleep all the time, not wanting to do anything, not wanting to move uh, would be some of the things to think about in the older kids when asking for parents. And of course, if they have underlying comorbidities, such as the presence or absence of a central line or the presence or absence of an immunocompromising condition would be key elements to take in the history. And then fever is not necessary, but helpful in making that diagnosis. Is that right? I would say it might be helpful, but it, it's not going to, it's not going to rule in or rule out any possibility. If you're considering sepsis and a patient does not have fever, you're not done. You still have to think about it. That's how I would approach it. If somebody has a very high fever and they have the presence of a central line or they're immunocompromised, such as an underlying cancer diagnosis, that would make someone highly worrisome that the sepsis exists. 
And then key to that, I assume for the exam part would be vital signs. There are still some places that aren't even checking blood pressures in children because they're worried about making them more fussy or something of that sort. So that's still a critical vital sign and something that's just routine in any pediatric emergency department. Yes, the full set of vital signs, including the pulse oximetry, would be very important to check in anybody that you suspect having septic shock. And if you are not able to get a blood pressure in the older child, particularly when they come in looking lethargic, that would be a sign to worry because it's possible that the blood pressures are so low that you're not registering on the automatic machine you have. And you'd have to do manual blood pressures or start doing your quick reassessments and not wait to get a blood pressure before you're going to intervene if you have sepsis in your possibility of diagnoses. This goes back to the concept of earlier recognition. Almost always, the earlier you recognize it, the earlier you can intervene, and the earlier you have hope that you're going to be able to make a difference for this patient. Good. And on that note, when we're talking about the examination, what kinds of things should make us think about septic shock that we might see with the clinical exam? Uh, similar to the history, there's going to be nonspecific findings. For example, if somebody comes in with a history of cough, you diagnose them with pneumonia and they have signs of perperfusion, whether they have crackles on their exam, whether they have decreased breath sounds in an area might be an additional clue in context of a, somebody who's not wall appearing. An area that's very hot to touch and very red on an extremity would be something to consider, particularly if it happened several days early and it's been getting progressively more red and more bothersome to the child. In that kind of setting, pain out of proportion to your exam would be something to think about in the younger child that can't really speak for themselves. If they have signs of poor perfusion, regardless of whatever complaint that they're coming in with, if there's the presence of a gallop with the history of somebody having a fever sometime in their illness, for patients that have underlying conditions such as the central line and the cancer patients, those families are usually well educated on what kind of things to watch out for. And the littlest thing would be something that they would bring them in. In the very young infants, if they have low temperatures, would be another thing to bring to the attention. They present with hypothermia and they're ill-appearing. There's young infants that have hypothermia, but they're very well-appearing. That's different than the population that we're talking about. It's the combination of not looking well plus the hypothermia that would make somebody clue in on the presence of sepsis. Good. So each of these is increasing the body of evidence for making the diagnosis ill-appearing, has hypothermia, yeah. is lethargic. As you move down that list of examinations, the more boxes you tick, the more likely the diagnosis becomes. Exactly. You could have a very common diagnosis that doesn't usually lead to septic shock. For example, appendicitis. So if you have an appendicitis patient that you worry has perforated already, you're waiting to get a CT scan, all of a sudden they have blood pressures that are very low. You have to Think about re-examining them and re reassessing how much resuscitation you have given them. The same situation, a patient that looks like they have appendicitis, but they're an underlying immunocompromised patient who's receiving chemotherapy. Let's say somebody who's got acute lymphocytic leukemia in the stage of induction or at another time when they're getting high doses of chemotherapy. If they have findings suspicious for what would be an appendicitis in a normal host, but they have it. Uh, that would be another ominous finding. So if they have abdominal tenderness, peritoneal findings associated with hypotension, it would make you worry that there's underlying septic shock that would make the outcome worse for that patient. So it's always, the context is always important, particularly in light of the patient that's ill, lethargic, acting not themselves, 
those kinds of histories from parents should get your attention. Now, you mentioned this already about the overlap between septic shock and cardiogenic shock. There's a good discussion of that here in the article in the physical exam section when we're looking for exam findings that might also suggest cardiogenic shock. Does that overlap happen frequently or is that a common finding? I would not say it's a common finding. I would say it's common enough that you have to think about it, mm -hmm. but it's not common where almost every single patient with septic shock is going to develop that. If they have overwhelming sepsis, overwhelming sepsis is going to cause poor systolic function. And you're going to see that if you have an echocardiogram that's not being done at the bedside. So when you're in the eight to 10 hour mark and you're resuscitating these patients and you have the ability to get a formal echocardiogram done by your cardiology colleagues, when you're fine tuning the kind of vasoactive medications you're going to give after you've resuscitated them with volume, after you resuscitate them with either your epinephrine or your norepinephrine, that's where you can do some fine modulating of using your other vasoactive substances. Very early on, you're going to look very similar, overwhelming sepsis versus cardiogenic shock, with the caveat that if you see them not responding, you see them developing a gallop, you see them developing an oxygen requirement and pedomegaly in your older child, if you're able, able to do that exam, you have to think about the cardiogenic side effects or the presence of cardiogenic characteristics and not back off in terms of your resuscitation, but modify your resuscitation where you would, if you hadn't started the vasoactive drug at that point, you would, instead of continuing to throw, for example, you're at 40 per kilo in terms of volume and they develop crackles and a gallop, you're not going to keep giving them volume. You're going to start your vasoactive substance, whatever you choose to be the one at the time. That's the key to think about. So septic shock care in the developed settings has evolved from people not recognizing it fast enough, recognizing it too late, and then doing a lot, but it counts as too much because so much time has passed. Mm. That kind of changed into the spent pendulum kind of went into giving so much where it was recognized and then so much volume was given upwards of 80 to 100 per kilo. And they found consequences in those patients. And then that's when they started to back off and came up with the number of up to 60 milliliters per kilo, depending on the timing. Some of them are, some patients are sick enough to get it within the first 15 minutes. Other patients are well enough that you can do that over an hour. The key is at your 20 per kilo time point, 40 per kilo time point, before you get to the 60 mil per kilo time point, you have to be thinking about what other tools I have in order to be able to treat this patient and not to hesitate to pull the vasoactive drugs if the situation warrants it. And on exam, you mentioned the gallop and the crackles. In pediatrics, you'll see JVD as well? Older patients, the younger kids that it's going to be very hard to feel their necks, it's going to be hard. Older kids, you're going to see that. Hepatomegaly also in the older kids. In the younger infant who's fussy, you may not be able to get a good abdominal exam. In the older one, you may be able to get an exam. All of those will help you clue in on that possibility. Good. Some people are ultrasound trained mm -hmm. and for point of care ultrasounds that they can do some cardiac windows. I personally am not. So I rely on the clinical exam characteristics. There's actually a study called Septicus that I mentioned in the review where they're looking at the use of ultrasound and taking care of patients. So in the next five, 10 years, I can see the recommendations potentially changing depending on what those studies are found more and more people getting certified for doing point of care ultrasound, that might help in terms of cluing into the presence of other ideologies or getting the idea sooner that you have to start the vasoactive medications. Key being, 
the message that I want to send is to always think about it. The times that you not think about it or neglect to think about it is when you might be getting into trouble. And then on the physical exam, there is a distinction between warm and cold shock. Is that, what is that first? And then is it helpful in pediatrics? So that's more of a historical description, as I kind of described in the review. Kids with cold shock are the ones that have poor perfusion. They're very cold when you touch their extremities. The example of this is the community-acquired pneumonia that comes in several days out from their illness. They've, been, they've had cough and fever for several days. And then on the day or the day prior presentation is when they look awfully ill, lethargic, not wanting to do anything, the severe flu-type characteristics that I mentioned earlier. When those patients come in and you examine them, technically they have very poor cap refill, upwards of five seconds, and they're very cold in their extremities. And those are the patients that fit under the category of cold shock. Warm shock, historically, was more patients with central lines that come in with a day maximum two of high fevers and not looking well. And those are kids that have bounding pulses, high temperatures, and quite tachycardic. Those are the two kinds of distinctions between the two. Having said that, there's a lot of overlap. So the patient that comes in as quote unquote warm shock with the central line and the high temperatures and the tachycardia can very quickly have very cold extremities. And so you can't rely on the distinction. The physical exam findings aren't enough for you to be able to judge whether or not one or the other exists. The key is to resuscitate them. And whether you have severe tachycardia that's not responding to your fluids or severe cold extremities that's not responding to start the process of adding your vasoactive substances sooner rather than later is the key message that I'd like to get from the review. Because a lot of times, there might be some overlap depending on the timing of when the patients came in and the physical exam findings alone are not reliable. Perfect. As we move into diagnostics and we think about labs, so we like to order a bunch of things in the emergency department and, and sometimes these things are protocolized and there's a, a sepsis protocol if the person is recognized to have it. What kinds of labs are helpful when we're entertaining the diagnosis? So very early on, a blood gas that shows your glucose, calcium, potassium, sodium is very helpful. If you've started your resuscitation and you're put the sepsis into your differential, you have to think about your coagulation profile. You have to think about disseminated intravascular coagulation and whether or not this patient is going to require fresh frozen plasma or other blood products. There's actually an algorithm for when a patient requires to get blood products. A lot of the patients that have cancer as their underlying diagnosis, they present in septic shock. Blood products are a key to their management if there's quite a bit of number of abnormalities. One other thing to think about, particularly with the sepsis scores that we talk about, a coagulation profile platelets sometimes go into that equation of giving you a score of how severe that's their sepsis is. So all those labs are going to be something to think about. If you're going to be giving blood products, you have to put in a type and screen as well to match blood. If you have the luxury of time where you're going to be able to get that kind of blood. Other things to think about are reassessing. So a lot of times people will think to check somebody's blood, blood sugar and will address it. And then four or five hours pass and they, they forget to check it again. These kids have a lot of metabolic demand. And you have to constantly reassess, constantly recheck in order to make sure that you're maximizing the therapy for them. 
The same applies for calcium, particularly if there is a component of cardiogenic shock. You have to make sure that their calcium and their potassium are in normal levels in order to prevent further complications to the patient. So in the kid that's presenting with overwhelming sepsis, essentially you're getting almost every single possible laboratory available to your armamentarium. For patients that have the possibility of pancreatitis, you're also checking a lipase. If a cancer patient comes in, for example, somebody that's received pegasparaginase in their leukemia treatment and they come in with exam findings that are concerning, you'd have to add lipase to the regimen because if they have pancreatitis and they have septic shock at the same time, automatically they become a higher risk, higher mortality kind of patient. So essentially all kinds of labs, depending on the setting, you're going to be checking in this patients. So basics are chemistries, electrolytes, coagulation profile, and then depending on the subset of patients, what others are obviously empiric blood cultures. Some places do only aerobic cultures. In our institution, we do aerobic and anaerobic, particularly in the immunocompromised or the central line patient. You have to think about that because you isolate some organisms in anaerobic blood cultures that you don't in aerobic cultures. In the very young infants where it's hard to get enough of a blood supply because the amount of blood you get is a factor in getting an adequate blood culture sample, you might have to make the cut and just get an aerobic blood sample in terms of in, instead of both. But empiric cultures, cultures from the central line, if they have a central line, if they have indwelling hardware, for example, let's say somebody recently had an orthopedic device that was placed and they present with fevers, or if they have ventricular peritoneal shunt and they're within the timing of shunt infections that might present within the month, two months, current guideline is upwards of six months. So getting cultures from their shunt as well. So there's broad labs that you would on anybody that has septic shock. And then there's patient level dedicated labs, depending on the underlying illness. And the lipase is sent based on the clinical suspicion for pancreatitis, or are you just sending it on all of them? I don't think they get sent on all of them based on the clinical suspicion, on your abdominal exam. If they okay. have abdominal tenderness and not, not necessarily all of the patients. And it seems in the adult population, there's been a trend to still obtain the cultures, but then many labs are also doing PCR testing for specific gram-positive bacteria. Is, has there been much of that in the pediatric literature? There's not. There's talk of it. There's talk of characteristics that differential, differentiate viral from bacterial causes, but not none that has gone to the forefront in terms of affecting us clinically on how we do things. Okay. And then in the imaging side of things? What kinds of things can be helpful? Is this guided also just by the clinical exam? Chest x-ray seems pretty ubiquitous if you're entertaining pneumonia as a diagnosis. What else could be helpful? The chest x-ray, in your, if you're entertaining pneumonia as a diagnosis, but also to see if there's fluid volume overload while you're taking care of, while you're resuscitating the patient. If they have cardiomegaly at the same time, that might clue you in that there's a cardiogenic component. So it's not purely for diagnosing the pneumonia. Point of care ultrasound, if you have, if you're ultrasound trained in the patient that I example that I gave of somebody that has appendicitis, sometimes CT scans are part of the armamentarium. If you're not a site that has ultrasound, abdominal ultrasounds that get done as well, it's going to be tailored to what's going on with the patient. There's no specific imaging modality that's specific to septic shock. It's more what other additional findings they may have. CT scans for the belly are also important for cancer patients that are highly neutropenic and they have persistent abdominal tenderness and how you're going to diagnose tiflitis. So the CT scan is not just for patients that don't have other like comorbidities, but also for patients that have 
unlike comorbidities, and they're still in the emergency department. Nowadays, kids are spending a lot of time in the emergency department. Hmm. It's nationwide uh, staff shortages, and that affects not just the emergency department, but the inpatient side. So we're going to find ourselves taking care of patients, not, not just in the first hour or two, but even in normal times, we're going to be taking care of them at the fifth, sixth, seventh hour, sometimes longer than that. And so these kinds of imaging modalities, where it requires them for them to leave the department and all the considerations that come with it, who you're going to have at the bedside, how long they're going to leave the department, how long it's going to take for them to do that, whether or not you're going to give them a contrast agent if they have underlying kidney dysfunction, not just from the sepsis, but from whatever the underlying condition is. So the staff shortages are just going to make the decision-making even more complicated. And those things are minute to minutes, hour by hour, that you're going to have to assess at the bedside, emphasizing again the importance of frequent reassessments and how your patient is responding to the management approach that you've taken. Okay. And speaking of that management, then when we get into treatment, so some of these are basic. We're going to need some kind of vascular access. So in children, IO is also a frequent option, especially in the critically ill. Nurses have difficulty placing lines. Physicians have difficulty placing lines. So IO is appropriate and okay to use in the pediatric population and the critically ill. Yes. You can use the IO to not only give fluids, you can use it to give antibiotics. You can also use it to give vasoactive drugs. The IO is actually an important one because one of the iterations of the surviving sepsis campaign was specifically the recommendation to use IO on the pediatric population subset. A lot of physicians at the bedside were hesitant to do such an invasive thing and kids were not receiving enough volume, going back to the inadequate resuscitation component that I mentioned earlier. And so the quickest way to get access when you don't have access is to do an IO. An IO is easier and faster than it is to get a central line. Even if you have your central line colleagues, even if you're a central line fast all yourself, it's a lot faster to get an IO. But the key to the IO is it's temporary. It's not going to last them more than a day. So the IO buys you time and gives you the opportunity to give the initial resuscitation. And then from there, you make plans to establish the other access that you might have, whether that's peripheral access if you have a vascular access team versus a central access if you have your ICU colleagues or you yourself are facile in placing central lines in patients. And then when it comes to the fluid boluses, that initial bolus is still the recommendation of 20 cc's per kilo and then repeat depending on the response at that point. And we're talking some kind of balanced crystalloid solution or LR or something of that sort. Exactly. It's 20 mil per kilogram aliquots, sometimes given quicker, sometimes given slower, depending on the situation that you're in and depending on how the patient looks, with the key being not stopping at just one if they see that they need more to give more, but also getting into the realm of not giving too much if you're seeing consequences start to develop in the patient. Having the vasoactive substance in your mind ahead of time, this is a good time to mention the sepsis bundle. The sepsis bundle consists of empiric blood cultures, urine cultures in the right setting, whatever access they have, they have a central line to get cultures from the central line. If they happen to have a ventricle perineal shunt, getting your neurosurgery colleagues to do cultures from the shunt itself, including your laboratory markers. Sometimes people will include lactate. And then the other part of the bundle is empiric broad-spectrum antibiotics that cover for pseudomonas, in addition to gram-positive agents. And then after that, the volume resuscitation, whether it's balanced fluids or crystalloid. 
And then once you're reaching that 60 milliliters per kilo range, you've given three boluses. If there's response has been inadequate or there's been no response at all, at that point, you really should be entertaining pressers. Exactly. Even before you get to the 60 mil per kilo time point, if, you're, if they're showing signs of per perfusion inadequate response to the 40 mil per kilo, because it takes time to prepare the vasoactive substances from your pharmacy colleagues. So you want to be thinking about it sooner than the 60 mil per kilo time point. But that usually is the accepted one. Now, one of the, one of the articles that I mentioned that's in the clinical trials websites for studies that are being done is the use of early vasoactive medications where stop, you stop at 20 per kilo and one arm after the 20 mil per kilo volume, they start vasoactive substances. So I'd be curious to see what that study finds. So these recommendations might change in the next five to 10 years based on the studies that are out there. But currently the accepted volume amounts is 60 mil per kilo. Good. Yeah. We do this in the adult population already where someone can come in critically ill and we start that IV fluid resuscitation process, but don't necessarily have to complete it before we initiate pressors. And then that can always be adjusted minute to minute if we're starting in that initial bolus and we have pressors starting as well simultaneously and then they respond, we can always start reducing the pressors and increasing fluids and it becomes a fluid scenario. <laughs> Uh, no pun intended, but yes. uh, the dynamics of do I give more fluid and less pressors or vice versa can always change minute to minute. And just because I started the presser doesn't mean I can't turn it off if the patient no longer needs it. Right. And just because you start to give the additional volume doesn't mean that you can't back off of that either. It's always fine tuning to treat the patient. Here, here's the important caveat that sometimes, at least anecdotally in our institution, if you're on vasoactive substances, you need an ICU bed. So you can't take care of a patient that's on vasoactive substance in a regular floor bed. So historically in our institution, there was some hesitation where they're at the 60 mil per kilo time point. It's the right time to give the vasoactive substance. They've responded, but not fully. And some people might pull the trigger of jumping to 80, sometimes 100 mil per kilo because they don't have the luxury of the ICU bed. Hmm. That's anecdotal, anecdotally that I'm talking about at our institution. And you have to push to say, you have to do what's right for the patient. And if the patient requires the vasoactive substance to give it and not think about which bed they're going to end up, because the situation you're going to end up in is all that volume is going to harm them. And then starting the vasoactive substance is going to be too late. So there's a whole host of characters. And I mentioned that because of the staffing shortages that we have currently, I would hate for that to become a, a decision maker where the right thing for the patient isn't being done simply because we don't have the right place to send them. And that's why increasing amounts of time that they're spending in the emergency department makes it harder, where if you're going to pull that trigger and you're hesitating because you're not going to have a bed and they're going to be in your emergency department longer because of that, it creates for some dialogue about what the right thing to do is. And so the evidence is clear, though. If you need a vasoactive substance, the sooner you start it, the better the patient does. Good. Yeah. Do what's best for the patient and then worry yeah. about whether or not you need to transfer them afterwards. Afterwards. Yeah. Okay, and then there's a great table there on page eight, table three, with empiric antibiotic selection based on the type of infection you're suspecting. That's a helpful reference if you've got access to the articles. So pretty typical choices, I think. The neonatal choices are a little bit more nuanced just because of the types of infections there, but the rest seem pretty standard for patients who might be immunocompromised or if you're entertaining intra-abdominal infection as a cause. So those seem 
pretty similar to what we would use in adults, I think, except for the neonatal sepsis category. And the fact that you're, the word simple is key here because the simplicity of it is our adherence to the correct antibiotics being given is a lot better than our adherence to vasoactive substances. And evidence shows that. So if we are able to come up with studies that simplify things, recommendations that simplify things, hopefully it'll match the, our success with the antibiotic administration that we have. But yes, that table is great. And just to summarize, it's broad spectrum. You want to give gram-negative and gram-positive coverage. And in your broad spectrum approach, you have to be mindful of pseudomonas coverage for your patients with underlying immunocompromising conditions. In that population specifically, in our institution, for example, we'll do double coverage where if it's acute lymphocytic leukemia patient who has septic shock, has gotten 60 molecular volume is on vasoactive substance, we'll add amikacin to the regimen in addition to the other pseudomonas covering drug that we used initially, whether it be cefepime or meropenem. And so the double coverage for those kinds of organisms exists in a lot of the children's hospitals. Yeah, and I think this table is actually very helpful if you're in one of those institutions where your antibiotic selection is limited. These are critically ill patients who require some pretty broad spectrum antibiotic coverage. And if you are unable to get them in the emergency department, but you're in one of those scenarios where they're going to be spending any kind of length of time there because you're boarding or have to transfer the patient, this table alone is helpful to show to your local pharmacy and therapeutics committee and say, yes, we need access to these medications for this particular subset of patients because that's the standard of care for these people. And some facilities require consultation with infectious disease or something just to obtain the medicine. So this is good to do in advance. Yes, yes. And you mentioned the approvals from infectious disease. In our institution, the emergency department and the critical care settings do not require approval from the subspecialists in order to administer the drug because of the timing it takes to do that. And so I would suggest to have some sort of protocol tying into your antibiotic stewardship committees that you have in your hospital. So that becomes not a factor limiting your ability to take care of those patients. The other thing I would mention that I as mentioned in the table itself is for the adolescent female that might be using tampons or when you're suspicious for toxic shock syndrome, and then particularly in the neonates to have coverage for blisteria and also to consider in the very young infants, if they're overwhelming ill, to consider coverage for HSV. And then when we're entertaining pressors, now pressor choice, we have some options. There are some kind of what I would call first line agents or what you would start with immediately. And then some secondary things you can choose depending on how long they've been in the ED and whether or not they're developing the cardiogenic shock aspect. Is that a fair characterization of the groups? Yes, that is a fair characterization of the groups. And similar to the discussion about volume, where we went from excess volume historically and then fine-tuning it, the same thing has happened with the vasoactive drugs. Historically, particularly at our institution, dopamine was the first-line agent, and that has seen a shift, whereas epi or norepi, depending on the setting, are now the first-line agents. And then you can certainly use dopamine, but you have to be mindful of its arrhythmia generating characteristics, particularly at the higher doses. If you're using it at the lower doses, it's not as much of an issue as when you're using it at the higher doses. And so there is evidence to suggest that epinephrine or norepinephrine, even though it's low quality, but there is evidence to suggest that's the better agent to use as your first line. And you can use that regardless of the type of access you have. So historically, people hesitated to use 
epi or norepi in a peripheral IV. But as the recommendations have come across, you can use it temporarily until you get a more definitive central line if your patient requires it. So the type of access you have shouldn't be a limiting factor if you think that is the right agent and the vasoactive substance is the one to start at that point, to start it regardless of the type of access you have. And if you don't have access to place an IO and administer it that way. Fantastic. And then there's a discussion in the article about airway management. So this is interesting. We touched on this a little bit with the EMS personnel, but if you're in a scenario where you're having to also manage airway because the child has gotten so critically ill that that's now one more component of the resuscitation, there are some things that are helpful and some things that are also going to cause further hemodynamic instability. So tell me more about that. So the way I divide about the airway is I think about it in two methods. The way I think about it is there are those patients that are an extremist that you don't have to choice. You have to place the airway. And then there are those patients where you have a little bit of a choice. You're considering it, but you have a little bit of a choice. Either pathway you take, if you choose to place an airway, you have to be prepared for the consequences. So the induction agents you use can automatically put them into cardiovascular collapse, regardless of which fork you fell into. So the key is to be prepared to intervene if that happens. Now, if you have the luxury where they don't need the airway because they're not an extremist, the key is to provide them with resuscitation before you choose to place the airway. For example, if you can give them volume, if you can start your vasoactive substance, and then if they still end up needing it, then use your induction agents to place the airway. Now, placing the airway itself will change your characteristics in terms of the pressures you create inside the chest, the kind of pressures you're going to put on the heart, preload, afterload, all those kinds of considerations come into play. And if you have the requirement where you're going to have to paralyze them and you're going to intubate them using the paralytic agent or whatever induction agent that you have, the key is to be prepared for the lung dynamics that are going to change because of that. And so you may have to give more volume because all of a sudden they decrease their preload because of the paralytic agent that you used. So the key is to be prepared for the worst and then quickly reassess and modify and tune your response accordingly. Now, further on, this is you were able to avoid intubation. You gave them some sort of support where you gave them empiric oxygen to give them increased carrying capacity. They got into the intensive care unit and they have high doses of vasoactive substances that they're treating the patient with. At that point, our critical care colleagues may decide to also intubate because that decreases the workload on the heart. And that might be a factor. And the reason why I'm mentioning that is if they happen to spend 10, 12, 14 hours in the emergency department, you may be the one that's functioning as the critical care physician that might make the decision to intubate them at that point when you had the luxury of not being forced to intubate them early on. So those conditions, those characteristics are always something to be mindful of. Okay, a couple of things I want to touch on in this section, when we're talking about induction agents, you know, we're accustomed to using etomidate for adults and ketamine for the hemodynamically unstable adults seems like a pretty ideal choice. Is that similar in the pediatric population? The surviving substance caffeine article is pretty clear and I'm trying to avoid using etomidate. Now, this is a controversial arena because there's plenty of adults, EM docs and adults critical care colleagues that have used Atomidate for their critically ill adults. 
and they will keep on using it as an induction agent. The recommendation from the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, specifically for kids, is to try to avoid it if you can and to use a different agent. And for the very young infants, for example, somebody under a month of age or under two months of age, ketamine may not be a choice. And you may have to use induction agents such as benzodiazepine along with fentanyl and your paralytic agent and to be prepared for whatever consequence that might come from those drugs that you use. So in the septic shock setting, the specific recommendation is to try and avoid using Tomidate and using a different agent when you're going to be inducing patients. And ketamine seems like a good choice in that scenario. In your older child who's got overwhelming sepsis, ketamine is the best choice, particularly if you are noticing that you're already on a lot of these active substances, ketamine would be the best choice. And the recommendation to avoid etomidate is because of that adrenal axis suppression. It's debated at what point that occurs, whether that's after just one dose or full doses or long-time exposure to the drug, but, but that's the reason why they recommended choosing something else. Yes, it's changing of the adrenal axis, decreasing the cortisol response in the host that that, that came about from. And I will mention again, it's controversial. And the subset of patients that were studied were very sick patients with that had meningitis, which may not necessarily fit the category that we're talking about. So yes, with that picture of full transparency with the evidence being weak, but the surviving sepsis campaign specifically advises against using etomidate. Okay. Well, that's okay. I'm comfortable using ketamine. That's kind of our go-to drug in children anyway. So when we're talking about intubation, that's not really all that much more of a practice yeah. change. Yeah, is a great drug. Quick harm, quick off. It doesn't have too much consequences in terms of adults, in terms of how it changes their hemodynamics because of the quick on and off. So I could see the lure of it. But if you have overwhelming sepsis, probably ketamine is a better choice. And there is a mention in the article as well about heated high-flow nasal cannula. Now tell me where this falls into the algorithm when we're talking about airway management in a child. So one of the studies that I mentioned in the clinicaltrials.gov website is the OptiSepsis trial for adults, where they're using high-flow nasal cannula specifically for sepsis. It's essentially some kind of support. So in the category where you're not forced to intubate, but you think you have the ability to avoid intubation, but you want to give them some sort of support and nasal cannula isn't enough because they're having some sort of distress or they have some sort of crackles on exam, heated high nasal cannula might be the thing that buys you time so that you can t- avoid intubation altogether and you get them to the intensive care unit. I personally have taken care of patients that had ended up developing overwhelming sepsis, and I was able to avoid intubation by heated hypermasic cannula, and that was enough to support them through their disease processes, and they responded nicely. So I'm hoping there'd be better evidence than anecdotal evidence that will come about to show support for that. And I think it just increases our armamentarium of what we have to support these patients, because the jump from nasal cannula to mask to flow is different in terms of physiology. And for particularly the younger kids where there's the pulmonary component, providing that flow, providing that pressure might assist in their physiology. Is the point of the heated high-flow nasal cannula to be a stepping stone before positive pressure ventilation? If you have access to something like BiPAP therapy for children, would this be something you would go to before initiating that? Yes. Some children don't respond well to BiPAP because there's a component of the patients being able to tolerate the face mask that comes with that. And it's a little bit easier to tolerate the heated high-flow nasal cannula in terms of how much it 
bothers their face. Huh. If they're so severely ill where they're not even responding to you touching their face, clearly they've identified themselves as somebody that might require intubation. But prior to that, to try to avoid the need for that kind of invasive mechanical ventilation would be another tool in your armamentarium. And the high flow component provides some minimal positive pressure. Oh, sure, exactly. Yeah. If clearly there's evidence, not just not in sepsis, but clearly there's evidence that particularly in the RSV epidemic that we're currently in, it avoids intubation. And a lot of kids do well. The younger you are, the less likely you're going to respond. But if you're eight-month-old, 10-month-old who has RSV, they respond well. And the hope is that if they have sepsis, that they'll respond well as well. Great. So let's talk about now some of those special populations that were mentioned in the end of the article. There's a good section devoted to children with febrile neutropenia who then develop septic shock. What kinds of specialty things should we keep in mind for this specific population? This specific population, the key to think about is that they can sometimes come in well. And then when you start administering antibiotics, they change. And it emphasizes the importance of your frequent reassessments. There is the accepted guideline of the door to antibiotic time being less than 60 minutes for these patients. And if you have a system in place where you can mobilize your resources and administer the drug fast enough, it's just a testament to the ability of all the resource utilization that happens in the setting that you're in. And you're going to be able to take care of these patients a lot better. Historically, in the fever neutropenia population, a lot of the chemotherapy drugs that they get are cardiotoxic medications. So if you've got excessive volume that you're going to be giving, you have to think about those patients, their heart, when it's under duress, is going to manifest itself differently than when it's not under duress. And this is where you might need to back off. The other population that I'll talk about is the very specialized CAR-T recipient patients where they can tolerate very little volume. You stop at 10 per kilo. But these patients, it's known that they've gotten that kind of treatment because it's patients that have leukemia, that relapsed, that didn't respond, and then they got this kind of therapy. So hopefully you would have that knowledge at the bedside before you load them with tons of volume. There are times where they've gotten loaded with volume and they have not done well, and hence why the recommendations as such. The key is the timing, the reassessment, the modification, because they're not going to be the normal host that can tolerate upwards of 60 mil per kilo of volume. And to do the vasoactive substances sooner rather than later is key to that kind of, that subpopulation. And then this population is the one that's most susceptible to developing tiflitis, which is that infection of the, the cecum. Is that right? Yes. Tiflitis is essentially presents clinically similar to somebody that, ha that they may look like they have appendicitis when they present, but they're severely neutropenic. And if they need volume, if they have persistent abdominal tenderness or peritoneal findings on exam, that's an ominous finding for that present. If they have tiflitis and it leads to perforation, the outcomes are that much worse. And then they're frequently anemic, and so blood products are something we have to keep in mind for this population as well. Yes, blood products is mentioned and discussed well in the Surviving Sepsis Campaign reference that we talk about. So historically, a lot of blood products were given, and now the recommendation is if you've stabilized them, regardless of whether it was through volume or vasoactive substances, if you've stabilized them, the cutoff is hemoglobin of a seven. So if they're stabilized, they're hemodynamically responsive to the vasoactive substances, you're not constantly escalating your vasoactive substances, then you're okay stopping at seven. And where it becomes tricky is when you have 
escalating vasoactive substances, they're not responding, that's where you may have to go above seven. But there's good evidence to suggest that patients that stop at the seven level do just as well as patients that got more and in fact have lesser consequences from getting overloaded with too much blood product. Good. So using a threshold for a hemoglobin of seven. I like it. And then in the newborn population, this particular population also has their own complications they can develop. Right ventricular dysfunction is one of them. What is that going to look like on exam exactly for a newborn? You're not going to be able to judge it on exam. They're going to have findings where they're going to have poor perfusion. They're not going to be responding to the substances that you have. And you're going to have to have an echocardiogram done that shows the right-sided dysfunction. The thing to think about also is the use of nitric oxide in the subpopulation because they get more pulmonary hypertension that becomes a consequence and it causes them to have more hypoxia than the older children. And so you have to be in a setting where you'll be able to give that substance. And so a neonatal intensive care unit would be the best place to take care of those patients. We're talking about the kids that are very young. And also in that population, you also have the patients that have not yet been diagnosed with their underlying cardiac lesion that might put them at risk where it's more important to have that dedicated echocardiogram that might get done. And it changes the physiology and how you approach them. That's where your molarinone becomes more of a factor than in the older kids where you're relying on more of these active substances. And pulling the trigger of Molarinone is not going to happen early on in your resuscitation. It's going to happen a little bit later on when you have those parameters available for you to make a decision off of. And you don't want to use those kinds of agents early on because you might precipitate more hypotension and a worse outcome if they have not been adequately resuscitated. So that's the population where if you don't have a setting where you have a neonatal intensive care unit, that's where you want to think about transferring them early. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I've had the experience of resuscitating one of these children before who came in in what looked just like neonatal SVT and ended up having undiagnosed underlying congenital heart disease. And and that scenario progressed quite quickly. But I was very thankful for the presence of our PEDS cardiology experts in our bedside echocardiography, and then ultimately a transfer to a neonatal intensive care unit. So yes, the very, very highly complicated patients for sure. There's a, another great table. This, this article is filled with great tables, but another one, table five, that newborn sepsis physical exam findings I thought was also quite helpful. Just some things when you're examining the newborn to keep in mind beyond just skin modeling and being poorly responsive. There's a whole host of things there and then the relative system that's involved that I also found very helpful. Yes, thank you for that. I mentioned it earlier in terms of the temperature instability, whether they're hyperthermic or whether they're hypothermic. One thing that will sneak up on you that you sometimes don't catch in, in babies is apnea. So you're in the middle of bronchiolitis season. They're coming in with RSV and your patient that also has sepsis, they may have RSV and sepsis at the same time, will mimic your very sick bronchiolytic patient. And so you have to be mindful that apnea they're having is not necessarily purely from bronchiolitis or RSV. It might be from underlying sepsis. And Hence, the reason why you always have to think about septic shock when you're treating a baby that's quite sick. And your approach might change depending on what kind of vasoactive substance you're going to use if, if they need it. There's a bulging fontanelle if there's a patient that comes in where they have meningitis as well in the very young. Group B strep patients that come in looking very ill 
may have a bulging fontanelle or they may have a sunken fontanelle if they're excessively dry. So there's some other time points that you're going to assess. And it's the excessive irritability that doesn't calm down with comfort from the mom or the pacifier that might clue you in, which is a more nonspecific finding. And the pulses will be weaker and tone. They'll be more hypotonic. Tone might be more of an issue in the very young infant compared to the, let's say, somebody who's 10 months or 11 months old. Yeah, just in case you thought this wasn't getting complicated enough. So the, the newborn yes. child with RSV now with superimposed sepsis from a bacterial infection just sounds like a disaster. But, yes. Uh, yes. but it is something we still have to keep in the back of our mind, especially during this season. And also important because of where the times that we're living in, the patient that has COVID, so there's evidence to suggest that if you have COVID, you're at increased risk of having sepsis. So if somebody has a home test that was positive with multiple sick, sick contacts at home and they come in with fever, irritability, decreased tone, you are going to have to think about sepsis and not just attribute it to the COVID that's going on in the family. Wow. Okay. And then lastly, in the controversy section at the end of the article, there is also a discussion regarding corticosteroids. Where are we in the evidence realm for this therapy and are we doing it in children? So where we are is it is established for patients that have known underlying adrenal access problems such as adrenal insufficiency, septo-optic dysplasia, kids that come in that are on steroids by history because of their underlying condition. It is accepted and there is good evidence to suggest that those patients require getting stress doses when they're sick with sepsis. Where it is controversial is where they don't have that underlying history. So let's say a normal host comes in, a seven-year-old who doesn't have any history of adrenal insufficiency, and they come in with sepsis, and they are getting treated with vasoactive substances and receive volume resuscitation. It's unclear whether or not steroids help, and right now the recommendation is to avoid them and to only institute them for vasoactive and volume non-responsive patients. Again, one of the trials that I mentioned at the beginning, I believe it's called the SHIPS trial is the use of stress hydrocortisone. We're talking about patients that don't have any underlying adrenal access problems. That study is going to look at just the use of additional dosing compared to those that don't. So there might be more information that comes up, but currently the recommendation is not to use it unless they have the underlying adrenal access problem. I would mention, so for treating leukemia, the induction ages, a lot of times prednisone is one of the agents. So in that very specific subpopulation where they've gotten, it's not that the recommendation isn't to give right off the bat, but if they've gotten volume, there's on active substances and they're still not responding, is when you consider adding the, the steroid. And specifically, that will be something like hydrocortisone is what we're talking about. Yes, yes. Okay. Good. That's very helpful. Well, great. Thank you very much for taking the time to run through all that. There is a ton of information in this article. So again, ebmedicine.net. This is called Pediatric Septic Shock Recognition and Management in the Emergency Department. So many helpful tables. It's just like an encyclopedic chapter of all things septic shock in children. I highly recommend it to you. Thank you very much for taking the time to discuss it with us. And I really appreciate you and all the other authors putting in the effort in writing the article for us. My pleasure. And thank you for this opportunity. 
Well, that's a wrap, everyone. Thank you again for listening. And don't forget to rate us in whatever podcast store you're listening in. And also don't forget about the two free resources available to you, clinicalpathways.ebmedicine.net, mobile-friendly and available to you at the point of care, and the new ENM guidelines summary available to you at fomed.ebmedicine.net. Both of those will be available to you in the show notes. And as always, until next time, I'm your host, Sam Eshoo. Be safe, everyone.